How should we read the book of Revelation? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. And our very special guest on the show this time is here to help us, hopefully, understand the book of Revelation. He's Brandon Smith, Assistant Professor of Theology and New Testament at Cedarville University in Ohio in the States. He's also a co-founder of the Center for Baptist Renewal and host of the Church Grammar Podcast. We must ask him about that. What is church grammar? That sounds fascinating. He's the author of a new IVP into Varsity Press book in the Studies in Christian Doctrine and Scripture series called The Trinity in the Book of Revelation, Seeing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in John's Apocalypse. Brandon reads Revelation, and here I'm quoting from the publicity, Brandon reads Revelation primarily as John's vision of the triune God in conversation with early church theologians, including Irenaeus, Oregon, Athanasius, and the Cappadocians, as well as modern biblical scholarship. Smith shows how John's vision can help us worship the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. End of quote. <sighs> Brandon, hi. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brent. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, look, anything on the book of Revelation, brother, I've got to be in boots and all. I've found this a fascinating <laughs> read. Now, what can we learn from studying the book of Revelation in light of the Trinity? Yeah, so kind of the thesis of the book is that Revelation is one of those books where, you know, you've got a million different ways you could read it, and there's a hundred different opinions or maybe a million on on what it's about and what it means. And one of the things I want to show is that the doctrine of the Trinity is sort of the center of the book because the triune God is the center of the book. And really the triune God is the center of all of scripture. So, you know, regardless of which, you know, millennial view you take or what you think about the rapture or, you know, whatever else kind of issues come up there, which are not, not unimportant issues. Um, I think if you start with who is God, who is this God that is creating all things and making all things new? Uh, who is that? That's the center of the book of Revelation. And so what I, what I want to argue there is start with God and then get to everything else. Easy enough to say. <laughs> <laughs> what is John's understanding of the Trinity in the book of Revelation, do you think? Yeah. So, you know, I want to, I don't want to make a strong enough claim to say, you know, John new in 400 years what the Nicene Creed would say about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But certainly he seems to have a good understanding and, and one who is a disciple of Jesus would uh, of who Jesus is and how the Father, Son, and Spirit relate to Jesus. Um, Revelation being a, an apocalyptic book, there's a lot of imagery and figures and symbols and anybody who's read it knows that. Um, and so one of the things you have to do when you're reading Revelation is read Revelation on John's terms. Uh, when you read, let's say the Gospel of John, you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son uh, sent by the Father. He sends the Spirit. You've got really clear language there, the three titles, the three names. When you get to Revelation, it's a lot different because Jesus is only called Jesus a few times. He's called the Lamb primarily. Uh, so you already have some imagery there you've got to deal with. Um, the Father is never named the Father. Uh, he's called the one who was and is and is to come, uh, the one seated on the throne, some of this kind of language. And very clearly, that's not Jesus, because other times the lamb is on the throne with that person. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit, you know, it says that John is in the spirit. In other places, it says uh, that uh, the spirit speaks to the churches in Revelation 2 to 3. And then you've got, you know, the seven spirits who are in, for example, the doxology at the beginning. And so you've got to be able to sort of think through, and this is obviously um, not easy to do, but you have to think through, okay, there's a lot of imagery and symbols going on here. So we've got to ask these big questions about who are these main characters so that we can kind of move down the road of what John is trying to do. 
Yes, I'm going to come on to ask you about the Trinity in a minute, but you mentioned uh, the symbols of Jesus as lion and lamb. Now, why are those symbols so important and it would seem so central to the book? Yeah, well, the book is maybe primarily centered on right and false worship or true and false worship. And those who worship the lamb truly are those who are, for example, the martyrs, uh, those who have suffered, those who sacrifice uh, the churches in Revelation 2 to 3, they're the churches that are supposed to uh, sort of depend on this lamb, right? They're supposed to sort of submit themselves to him. And so this lamb motif, I think, is important because in John's uh, apocalypse here, what you have is um, the church that is going to be triumphant through the one who has been triumphant in his suffering and death. So when you see the lamb, uh, you see the lamb who is slain, he's called, you know, in several places. And that lamb who was slain, that one who had sacrificed, who suffered, uh, the one who we know, this Jesus from the Gospels, uh, that same lamb is the one who sits on the throne of God, right? And so I think there's this this parallel here for believers to say, uh, just as your Savior has died and rose again and is now sit, reigning victorious, you had this promise of being one who reigns with him and one who gets to be with him in this new creation that we see at the end of Revelation. Mm-hmm. So I think the lamb motif really focuses in on that suffering, that sacrifice that ultimately leads to the glory that we all are looking for in the new heavens and new earth. Mm, yes. Now, uh, you also bring out some very interesting points, one of which is that you, it's important and the importance of reading Revelation in light of the whole Bible and bringing the biblical mm-hmm. theology of the whole Scripture together. Why is that so important when we come to try and tackle Revelation? Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole New Testament, if you read the New Testament, uh, even not even that closely, just sort of reading it cursorily, you can see uh, the Old Testament is quoted a lot. You've got a lot of themes like temple, kingdom, Messiah, priest, I mean, all kinds of language you see there. And you get to Revelation and it's no different. Uh, what you look at in Revelation, uh, Gregory Beale, who has a great commentary in Revelation, says mm-hmm. that um, you can really never go very many verses, if any verses at all, without him quoting or alluding to the Old Testament. Uh, what you see with John and the ar- argument I make, and I'm not the only one who's made this, is that John in some sense sees himself as the uh, in line with the prophets, the one who is talking about, here are all the prophets who have said this thing is coming. Isaiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, they've all said that this Messiah is coming, this new heavens and new earth is coming. And I'm sort of, uh, John is sort of the one who gets to say, now all these promises are coming true in Christ. So the better that you understand all of the prophets and all of the Old Testament things that he's drawing on there, the better you understand how he's using those passages in order to make his point. And so I think that's, and, and that's all throughout the New Testament, right? As, as you understand the context, you understand how the Bible fits together, the little pieces make a lot more sense. And I think Revelation is a, is a prime example of that. I seem to remember, because I own, I'm a proud owner of Beale, a massive commentary. I think at some point he, he says that there are over 3,000 quotations. John employs something like 3,000 quotations or more from the Old Testament, which is a staggering mm-hmm. number of quotations. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's quote that, that's quotations, not just allusions, which that's, are not quotations, but using themes well, and wording be, and all be, kinds of things. Yes, it could be allusions and right. quotations. I can't remember, but it's certainly three thousand allusions and all quotations, or both. Um, yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah, it, it, it's everywhere. How? Because you, you refer a lot to the church fathers and their understanding of Revelation, which I found fascinating. Mm-hmm. How I wonder, did the early church fathers understand Revelation? Yeah, well, it depends on which father. Um, you know, uh, the, the that's the that's the the uh, sort of softball answer there, the, the easy answer. Um, you know, the first couple of centuries, you have what looks a lot more like premillennialism. If you're familiar, you know, if your listeners are familiar with that kind of view, you know, um, that there's this future 
reign of Christ that's coming. Uh, there's maybe or maybe not a future for Israel, whether specifically or or along with the church, um, that we're all kind of waiting for all of these events to happen in the future. So maybe Revelation, I don't know, at least 18 or 19 to 22 is all future. Um, that's pretty common, like in Justin and Irenaeus, uh, they're doing that. Um, you get that sort of amillennial view where it's much more figurative and these things are sort of um, figures of things that are happening now, aside from maybe the last couple of chapters. Uh, that that picks up really strongly with Augustine. I mean, it, it's not, it exists before Augustine, but Augustine is the one that really pushes it uh, in a really meaningful way, puts it together in a meaningful way. And so um, they're all reading Revelation a little differently. Obviously, they're reading Matthew, they're reading First Thessalonians and other related uh, books that that talk about eschatology. But the one thing that they all have in common that I think gets lost a little bit, and that's something I'm trying to draw on, is that they all really start with who is God? How has God providentially ordered scripture? How is God speaking into history? And that is sort of the interpretive key by which they see the rest of Revelation. So they're not so much caught. Now, now you'll see it a little bit, like with Justin and Irenaeus, you'll see some uh, decoding going on where they're like, well, maybe the thousand years is really like a thousand years from now. Or maybe, um, you know, I think I think it was Irenaeus who predicted that it was going to happen by the time you and I, are, I mean, he would have already come by now if Irenaeus was right. Um, but they always start with, here is Christ who's on the throne. Here's the one who we're looking to. And so I think what they do is they help shift us back to, again, start with God and then let that inform the rest of the way that you read Revelation. Let's come on to talk at the three persons of the Trinity and a little bit about how they, they feature in the book. How does John describe God the Father, for example, in Revelation? I know it's a huge question, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got a whole chapter on it, so... You have, um, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think, you know, with the Father, the way that I try to frame it is to say, uh, the Father is typically, like I said earlier, referred to as the one who was and is and is to come, which is very clearly drawing on Exodus 3.14, the I am language there. It's a very clear uh, sort of drawing out of that. Um, and also the one who's seated on the throne. Uh, he's the one who's, who sends Jesus, the one who sends the revelation of Christ. And so you see the Father in some sense as um, the initiator or the sort of the one who is pushing the storyline ahead. And so the Father, just like you see in anywhere else in the New Testament, the Father is the one who sends the Son. The Father is the one who has this plan of redemption that is going to be worked out through the Son. And so the Father is very similar there. But again, with Revelation, it doesn't say Father very many times. So there's that extra layer of picking up on who is the Father, you know, what, what kind of language is he using for the Father? And then you can kind of move down the road to say, okay, here's the Father here, here's the Father here. Uh, and once you pick up on he's the one on the throne, uh, I think I titled the chapter Father, the one who's seated on the throne. Once you see that, the one who is on the throne, you can pretty much always default to assuming is the Father, unless it's very clearly saying the Lamb is also on the throne. Mm. Uh, you feature Revelation chapter 4 and 5 quite a bit in the book, and the Church Fathers wrote a lot about Revelation 4 and 5 as well. They're fabulous chapters. What does John's vision of the throne room in chapters 4 and 5 teach us about the Trinity, I wonder? Yeah, so you have the one who's seated on the throne, so you've got the Father. Uh, he's receiving praise and worship, um, as, as we would all expect, right? I think when your average person thinks about uh, heaven and what it might look like and what the throne is, they're going to imagine the Father sitting there. Uh, what Revelation does is now says not only is the Father seated on the throne, but the Lamb is seated on the throne, not just at the right hand, although that's an important theme in other places. Um, he is seated on the throne with the one who's seated on the throne, and he is being sung to, so he's being worshipped. 
Uh, all of the creatures are all around the throne, bowing, worshiping, singing hymns. And so, uh, you know, a really easy way to see how do you know the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally God in Scripture is that they all receive worship. So you see that at the very beginning in chapter one, the Father, Son, and Spirit are the ones who give the revelation, who give the blessing. That's a that's a divine action. Uh, you get to Revelation, you've got the Father and Son seated on the throne. And then you might say, well, is the Holy Spirit sitting on the throne? Because otherwise, maybe he's not God after all. And there And there's so many modern commentaries I interact with that say something like, well, maybe the spirit's not really God, or maybe he's an angel or something else. Um, but one thing I, I argue about the spirit is you have two things. One, you have the spirit uh, bringing John into the throne room in the first place. So the spirit and only the spirit has the power to bring John into God's throne room. So there's something very particular about what he's doing versus you know an angel or something else in Revelation. Um, the other thing that you have with the spirit as you have uh, in Revelation 4 and 5 and a few other kind of places it's hinted at, you have the, the eyes of the Lamb that, that go away from the throne, that go and search the earth. Uh, this seems to me to be a very clear drawing on Zechariah 4, uh, maybe Isaiah 11 as well, the sevenfold spirit, the one who who uh, is sort of searching hearts, the one who's searching the earth, sort of the way that the Lord has his presence and vision on the earth. Uh, that is tied to the seven spirits. So if the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit, which I think you can make that case in, in a few places, now you have the Holy Spirit on the throne side of the heavenly you know, map or whatever you want to say. Mm -hmm. So now you've got the Father seated, the Son seated, and now the Spirit who's proceeding from the throne, which is very similar to, again, like the Gospel of John, right? The Spirit is the one who Jesus sends back to the earth in Pentecost uh, to fill believers, to sort of uh, be his presence on the earth. And so you see that, I think, very clearly in Revelation 4 to 5 as well. So the Spirit's not seated on the throne, but the Spirit's doing all the stuff God does in and around the throne, uh, mm. separate from angels and creatures and everyone else. Yes, I want to come on and talk a bit more about uh, Jesus in the throne room there because that's important. But I can't resist asking you a question about Irenaeus um, yep. and how Irenaeus understood the four creatures around yep. the heavenly throne because anybody who knows me, my co-host Rito, who unfortunately can't be with us today, was like, you go, you've got to ask him a question about the cherubim because anybody who knows me know, knows that I'm fascinated by these <laughs> very strange creatures full of eyes all around yeah. surround, the throne, surround the heavenly throne. Now, what does Irenaeus understand about them? Yeah, so Irenaeus says that these are the four Gospels. Uh, and he, he does a whole, and this gets picked up a little bit after Irenaeus as well. He seems to be the one that that maybe introduces it. Uh, he sees it as the four Gospels. So this four-faced cherubim is basically uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he'll do it through, you know, the eagle is one thing and the ox is another. And I think what he's doing there is, uh, you have to remember, he's writing in the second century. Uh, he is almost definitely um, sort of a grandchild in the faith of the Apostle John. So he learns from Polycarp, who is a disciple of John by all accounts historically. And so he is um, sort of, fighting against these Gnostics, these ones who say there's all these extra Gospels. Uh, if you ever read the Da Vinci Code, you get a popularized version of this exact idea. Um, so, okay, we got these four Gospels, but we got the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of so-and-so and so-and-so. And these Gospels have all kinds of weird things in them about, you know, there's one, uh, the infancy narrative of Jesus where uh, he's a teenager and he blinds a bunch of children who pick on him on the playground and blinds all their parents. Uh, you know, things that you would say, well, this doesn't seem like the Jesus of the Gospels. So what Irenaeus is doing is he wants to argue, no, these four Gospels are the four Gospels that are the authenticated, scriptural, whatever word you want to use there. Um, these are the four Gospels we have. All the others are false. 
And so I think part of what he's doing there is saying that uh, four is an important number, especially for his argument against the Gnostics. He'll make an argument that we have four covenants in the Bible, for example. And then you get to the four faces in, Re- in the Revelation. He says, oh, there you go. Four faces. Uh, I can make sort of an allegory or a, or a typology or something to make them fit the four gospels. And so now we have the four gospels in Revelation. So look, the four gospels are everywhere. It can't be more than four. So that's kind of what he's doing there. So I think I argue in the book, whether or not you agree with his interpretation, and I have questions about it, he is trying to make an argument that the Bible fits together, that there's a unity, that there are particular books that belong and don't belong. And so I kind of make the argument that, hey, part of the way you read Revelation is you assume that those four gospels tell you about this Jesus and that the Bible fits together. And so if you don't like his interpretation, that's fine. But kind of underneath what he's doing there is actually a really good move to make when you're reading the Bible. I love his uh, interpretation and the fact he links the four Gospels to the four cherubim and uh, yep. the eagle, ox, lion, and so forth. But yep. uh, also um, uh, the, uh, the the fact that he also, am I right in thinking he goes on to talk about the four winds, yep, yep. north, south, east, and west, the four directions as well. So he, yep. he brings in all this other universal imagery. Coming back to the throne room, sorry, I had a version. Coming back to the <laughs> throne room, why is the throne room vision, and I think you've already partly answered this, but why is the throne room vision so important for an understanding of Jesus as God? Yeah, so when you see Jesus sitting on the throne next to the Father, uh, you might say, and, and some commentators have said this, okay, maybe he's just like the highest servant. You know, he's the Messiah, he's died for our sins, so he gets like a special place. Uh, the only problem with that is uh, there's, there's, it's partially true, but the fact that he is receiving worship, he's, re- he's having hymns sung to him, uh, that is a clear clue. Uh, in, and, and you have all these creatures bowing down to him and all this kind of stuff. That's a clear clue uh, throughout all of Scripture, but particularly in Revelation, that Jesus is receiving worship. And if Jesus is receiving worship, well, who alone deserves worship but God, right? Um, some people make the argument that Jesus, maybe he's just like a super angel or like a, you know, the greatest angel or something like that, because he's a heavenly figure and, you know, he's a servant and these kind of things. The problem with that is uh, John bows down to worship angels in Revelation. They say, hey, 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 that's not not appropriate. Do not worship us. We are servants with you of the Lamb. Uh, and so Jesus, when he has hymns being sung to him, he's sitting on the throne. Everybody's bowing around. Jesus doesn't, you don't have the Lamb saying, wait, wait, guys, sorry, you've totally misunderstood. I know I'm up here on the throne. I know I'm kind of in the space of God, but you've totally mistaken. I'm just an angel. Now he receives the worship because he is worthy of the worship. Yeah, very much so. And how did the early church fathers, I wonder, use Revelation to present Jesus as God? Yeah. Well, one of the most obvious examples I draw out is Athanasius. Um, Athanasius, uh, because one of the things you see in Revelation, you'll see it like in chapter one, uh, Alpha and Omega language being uh, spoken of in one and, and later in the book about the Father and the Son, for example. So Athanasius draws that up and says, well, look, if if uh, Jesus is called the Alpha and Omega, if he's sharing the same title as the Father, then he must be God, uh, because only God is worthy of these type of titles and and stuff like that. So, as you're thinking about the Trinity in Revelation, you know you've got you've got the uh, doxology where they're offering worship. Uh, this is this is brought up in a few places. You've got the throne sharing, and then you know Athanasius brings up, for example, you've also got titles and names that are shared, and so you've got sort of every category you could think of for God whether it's divine nature, whether it's heavenly sovereignty, whether it's uh, salvation, whether it's judgment, Jesus is always wrapped up in that. And so Athanasius and some of the others um, are a really helpful sort of guide for that because they just point out things that 
once you see them, you can't unsee them. You know, once you see these sharing of titles and things like that, you're like, okay, Jesus has got to be something different than just an angel or something else. And John brings a lot of biblical theology in, doesn't he, in the book to brings it all together to present Jesus as God. How, how does John bring together so much of the Bible to present Jesus as God? Yeah, I think, I think one of the things you see is you know, the prophets are making all these promises about how uh, Zion, uh, uh, Yahweh is going to return to Zion and Yahweh is going to come and save his people personally himself. And so when you get to Revelation, John, with all of these prophecies and all these Old Testament themes and ideas in the background, um, whether you, you can say whether you can say he's piecing it together uh, because he's a disciple or whether you can say the spirit has inspired him or a little bit of, of everything, um, he clearly realizes, OK, all these promises have come true in Christ. Uh, you've got a you've got a quote there in the first chapter, and I'm drawing a blank on I think it's Zechariah 12. Uh, God is the one who is pierced, so for example, in Zechariah. Then that's applied to Jesus. Okay, so now, now Jesus, the one who was pierced, is not just a man, but he's God. He is the God who has been pierced. And you know, maybe a first-century Jew uh, or a or an Israelite before that may not have thought God is going to put on flesh and dwell among us and die on the cross for our sins. They may not have understood that fully. But John, on the other side of it, says, "Hey, wait a minute." God said he was going to be pierced. Jesus is God and he's pierced. And you see that that kind of thing gets picked up all the way throughout. A lot of the promises of Isaiah uh, about Yahweh's return and Yahweh's making this new creation. Uh, Jesus is, is right alongside the Father doing all those things. So what you see is those, those prophecies about Yahweh's salvation now being applied to Jesus. How is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, presented in Revelation? Yeah, the, the seven spirits is probably the most obvious. I, I think you can do a lot of heavy lifting with that. Uh, right there in chapter one, uh, I mentioned the doxology. You have grace and peace from the one who is and is to come, from the seven spirits, and from Jesus Christ. Okay, so you start doing a process of elimination, right? Uh, a doxology or a benediction or some sort of offering of grace and peace is always tied to God. This is a, this is a thing only God does. You and I can't offer divine grace and peace and heavenly grace and peace to others. So you've got uh, Jesus. Okay, we cancel him out. You've got the one who is and was and is to come, seems to be the father. Now you've got to do something with the seven spirits, right? And so you've got a couple options. The seven spirits could be uh, seven archangels or chief angels. This is an argument that some people make. The problem is that angels don't do what God does. And in fact, in Revelation, uh, the angels, again, every time J John tries to treat them as divine, they say, whoa, 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 no, 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 like you've, you've misunderstood. Like I know I'm, you know, you could, you could imagine the angel saying, I know I'm shining and I'm from heaven and I'm glorious and I've knocked you off your feet, but I'm still not God. So that's one thing you see there uh, with the seven spirits. Also, I think this number seven all throughout Revelation is clearly a number of completion and perfection. Uh, you can go all the way back to Genesis and God uh, creating and resting on the, on the, on the seventh day. Um, that number seven, you've got seven churches, you've got uh, seven cycles, you've got you know seven, 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 seven. And if Revelation is God's making all things perfect and complete in the new creation, then seven carries that kind of weight throughout Revelation, I think. Um, and so when you get to the seven spirits, okay, process of elimination between him doing divine things and being the number seven att attributed to him, you can say, okay, then that is one spirit and it's the Holy Spirit, the divine spirit. And then again, as I mentioned earlier, you've got him bringing John into the throne room. You've got him coming away from the throne um, at the very end. Uh, one of my favorite things, I didn't, I didn't spend as much time in the book on this as I should have, but uh, at the very end of Revelation, you have uh, the river of life flowing from the throne of God, the God and the lamb. Uh, well, you go through, go read through the gospel of John, John chapter four, you know, the woman at the well, I'm going to give you this water that's going to well up in you and give you eternal life. John seven, 
Jesus says, oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to give you this water. Oh, that water is a spirit. Just, just to clarify, just in case anybody was mistaken, right? Uh, you need to be baptized uh, by water, this kind of idea in the spirit. And so in Revelation, now you have the spirit again, coming from the throne of God and the lamb. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit, but it says the river of life. And all throughout the New Testament, the, the Holy Spirit is, is attributed to this kind of language of this river of life, this eternal life and water. So again, it's just, it's, it's, it's unlocking that sort of uh, code is probably not the right word, but unlocking the way that John speaks in Revelation. Uh, once, you, like, like I said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Why is the Holy Spirit, you're right, the Holy Spirit is the most overlooked main character in the book. Now, why is the Holy Spirit the most overlooked main character in the book, do you reckon? Yeah, I think because it doesn't say Holy Spirit as clearly as people want. I mean, I think when it says John is in the Spirit, everybody can pick up on that and say, okay, there's some sort of um, illumination happening or, or somehow, you know, the spirit. I mean, some commentators just argue that all he's doing is just having sort of he's in a trance and they use the spirit language as just a way to talk about, you know, he's in a trance or something uh, that doesn't seem quite right. Um, so I think what, one of those things is, again, you pick up on all these things the spirit is doing, but it's hard to do that. And it takes uh, a little bit of work. I mean, it took me five years to, I think, get to the point where I felt like I was I was able to articulate it properly. But Jesus is the centering figure of Revelation. He's obvious. He's right there. Um, it's There's no, no problem. Uh, the Father, you can, again, you'll assume the Father sitting on the throne, worst case scenario. The Holy Spirit, there's a lot more um, sort of language going on there that's just not as clear as we want it to be. But I think, again, once you see the Spirit, you recognize just throughout all the New Testament, uh, the work of the Father and Son is never complete without the Spirit. Uh, Jesus says, it's better for me to go away in John 16, so I can send you the Spirit. Well, why is it better for Jesus to go away? Because sending the Spirit is part of God's plan of salvation. And so I think in Revelation, you cut the Spirit out and you miss the completing work of God. I mean, Revelation, if he is the river of life flowing from God and the Lamb, and that's where we have eternal life, that's the the water that is uh, feeding the the tree of life you know, that we were exiled from in Genesis 3 and are brought back to in Revelation. The Spirit is the one who's completing and sanctifying us, uh, even into eternity in some sense, I think. Uh, and so if we miss that, we miss the end of salvation and the completion of salvation. Brandon Smith, thank you so much. The author of this new IVP InterVarsity Press book called uh, The Trinity in the Book of Revelation, Seeing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in John's Apocalypse. Now, Brendan, before you go, what is the Church Grammar podcast and where can people find it? Yeah, so I, I named it Church Grammar uh, because I say that theology is the language of the church. And okay. so uh, whether we think we're theologians or not, uh, all of us are doing theology when we're speaking about God. And so uh, the Church Grammar podcast is, is really, it's, it's very similar to this one. I try to interview authors and um, different thinkers and theologians and pastors about how to understand theology well, how to understand the church well, and uh, sort of all under the banner of this is us speaking about about God and who he is. So I I you can find title. that. I love the title. Yeah, I like, and I got a really, uh, really, you know, good artist come up with a way to make a church building out of commas and and periods and stuff. So the the awesome, it's got a fun logo. So yeah, you can find that Apple, Spotify, all the places you find podcasts. Oh, that's fabulous! And where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I tweet occasionally at uh, Brandon underscore D underscore Smith. Uh, Facebook, I think that's the only places that I that I'm public. I have an Instagram, but I keep it I keep it locked up. So. Okay. Yeah, I haven't made it. I haven't. I haven't made it to Instagram yet. I think that's next in the plan. But there we go. Thank yep. you so much, Brandon Smith, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Brandon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brent.
We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.